Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. The management dynamics of cows and quail are always a great topic of interest. The relationship is a balancing act. Sometimes it is too much, too little, or hopefully the balance is just right. Dr. Dale's guest today is well-equipped to talk about those management strategies. He's Charlie Christensen of San Angelo, a rancher with bird dogs. Let's go to Dr. Dale now with his special guest. Well, good morning, Gary. It's a pleasure to hear from you and always a pleasure working with you all over there. And we've got a, a really cool podcast, I think, for you today. And I hope you get a lot out of it because it's uh, addressing one of the major impacts positive or negative on our rangelands and especially uh, semi-arid rangelands like most of the quail range is in Texas. I want to start off by quoting Aldo Leopold. Uh, Aldo Leopold, we, I, I cite him quite often and uh, if you dabbled in natural resources at all, you've, you're probably aware of him. He was the first professor of wildlife management at the University of Wisconsin and in 1933, so over 90 years ago, he wrote a book game management. And in that book, uh, he described what uh, I refer to as Leopold's toolbox with this quote, the central thesis of game management is this game can be restored by the creative use of the same tools, which have heretofore destroyed it. Ax, plow, cow, fire, and gun. Now here in Texas, ax takes the form of brush control. We've talked about that and we'll you talk about that. The plow, soil disturbance or, or reseeding agriculture in general, the cow, grazing management, fire, prescribed burning, and the gun. So we're going to focus in on one of those today, that being the cow. And I'll precede this by, by saying that sometimes the discussions on cows and quail can be contentious. Uh, you can have too much grazing, and, and we've seen that a lot especially as we have some drought years and so forth. We can have too little grazing. We'll talk about where that might be a problem and we can have it just right. So uh, we wanna learn how to adjust those ingredients and uh, the recipe for making it just right and to focus on that, what Leopold called the creative use of cows for as a tool in quail measure. I wanna precede our discussion with my preacher Paul's precautionary professions. Uh, love Preacher Paul. I'm inviting you all to come to church with me if you're ever in San Angelo on a Sunday morning. You'll enjoy Preacher Paul too. But he'll often precede a sermon by saying, I want y'all to know I'm not mad at any of you. And what he's basically telling the congregation is, heed the message, but don't shoot the messenger. And then he also says, and I really like this one, sometimes he'll say, now you're free to choose your actions, but you're not free to choose the consequences. Can I have an amen? And we, we say that to our teenagers all the time. And, and uh, we got to realize that there's always consequences to what we do on the back 42. So we got to learn to appreciate that. Now I'm going to take you back about 60 years to the Ed Sullivan show on Sunday night. If you're of that vintage, you probably have seen a guy that would spin plates on sticks. He'd have six or seven plates spinning at one time, kind of a, a juggler, if you will, or if you're 
not of that vintage and you're more of a YouTuber, well, I encourage you to YouTube a video called Amazing Juggling with Chris Bliss. Amazing Juggling with Chris Bliss. Uh, just to set the tone of what we're going to be talking about today and how, again, oftentimes uh, life is a juggling exercise. And we're going to talk about that as regards cows and quail. Grazing is a two-edged sword. On the one hand, it sets back plant succession. It provides those earlier successional plants like uh, Bob White's Thrive On, various forbs and so forth, but it also removes grass for cover. Yes, I think cows and quail do compete. They compete for grass. Cows eat it, quail need it for nesting and so forth. So it's, again, it's a balancing act. It's a juggling situation. So where's the beef? Well, back in 2000, I uh, surveyed Quail Unlimited members in Texas and also landowners from 12 different counties that had the greatest uh, leasing potential for quail habitat. And so I asked them various questions, but one of the questions was, what do you think are the major factors impinging on quail and quail habitat? The quail hunters said overgrazing was an issue. 39% of those respondents said that. When we asked the, the ranchers, only 1% said overgrazing was an issue. So we've got a cool hand Luke's lamentation there, failure to communicate. And often, uh, some of the, one of the patterns that I've discerned over the years is, and I've worked with many, many, many landowners in several states. Uh, and again, our our quail are occurring mostly on our rangelands in Texas. And so I often say that one of the patterns that I've discerned is that ranchers with bird dogs, ranchers with bird dogs are a quail's best friend. Now, ponder on that just a second. And I'll take you back to Susie's 12-point plan, and point number 10 there says, be thankful when your vocation and your avocation are one and the same. So if we've got a, a ranch manager, if we've got a rancher that uh, has bird dogs, he's probably thinking both of what his vocation is in terms of cattle, but also his avocation and his love for quail hunting. And we have such a guest today, and we're going to looking forward to visiting with him. And as we move through the podcast, I encourage you to be thinking, uh, one of the principles of debate is that until you understand your opponent's viewpoint, you cannot successfully defend your own. Until you understand your opponent's viewpoint, you cannot successfully defend your own. So we're going to cast ourselves uh, in the in the saddle with a, with a rancher and landowners as they contemplate such things as stocking rate and brush control and those kind of things. My guest today is a fellow San Angeloan, Charlie Christensen. Charlie is um, Welcome, Charlie. Charlie's a quail hunter, and he's a rancher, and he exemplifies my idea of ranchers with bird dogs. So welcome, Charlie. Thank you, Dale. I appreciate you having me on. Looking forward for the uh, the visit today with you, and Charlie brings some real bona fides to the table on this. So, Charlie, kind of give us your uh, elevator speech. For where you at today, and how'd you get there? Well, it's kind of, it's kind of a long path, but I've, I'm a general manager of Cargill Cattle Company and producer livestock auction in San Angelo. And so we we're scattered out kind of all over this part of the state and ranching. And, and uh, of course we have interactions with a lot of ranchers and some of them are, you know, bird hunters and some of them aren't. I, I, I started out a long time ago as a, as a kid, it, it's kind of the hunting and the quail hunting and the deer hunting and, and all that. And the ranching's, 
kind of in my blood. So I've been around a while. Well, and one of the things that, again, in Char I've known Charlie for quite a while. And one of the things, one of the bona fides that he brings to today's discussion is that you've managed ranches all the way from, say, Victoria to Big Lake kind of thing. And that'll be important as we talk about uh, the the controversy or the, the contention around grazing and quail management. Let's check first, Charlie, your, your quail bona fides. So uh, when did you get started quail hunting and uh, where was that at? And Dale, I, I guess I, I started, I'm, I'm, I'm 65 years old. So I started at a, at a young age. My family, I grew up in Austin and my family always had a ranch outside of Austin, my grandfather's place north of town. And, and uh, we had birds there when I was a kid and, and, uh, and we had country in the hill country and it was a family place. And then we even ended up with some, some partial ownership and some land in South Texas down in McMullen County. And, and uh, so I've, I've been quail hunting as, as long as I can remember. And, you know, all the way up, it wasn't, but it seems like it wasn't, but about five years ago, but about 35, 40 years ago, I was, I was still hunting, hunted horseback some with my bird dog and back when I only had one dog and, you know, in Burnett County and was killing quail down there. So I've, I've been hunting quail for a long time as well as pretty much everything else that flies and, and, and is huntable. Well, I premised today's discussion on ranchers with bird dogs. So tell me about your bird dogs. Well, I've, I've owned, since I was a kid, I've owned from one to, to, you know, eight or nine bird dogs. Some of those have been with partners, but I've always been kind of the one that took care of them. And so, you know, presently I only own about five and uh, mostly mostly German short hairs right now. That's been the predominance of my dogs over the years, but I've had Labradors and, and a wonderful English Cocker Spaniel for retrieving. And I've had, uh, so I've never had any setters. I've never had any Britneys, no long haired dogs as far as pointers, but I have had some English pointers and some, some, some Vishla crosses and some, you know, I kind of was a, was a beggar for a long time for dogs. I've never gone out and spent any money on a dog. I just, uh, people would give them to me or they couldn't handle them. So I'd take them and try them. And if I could make them work, I kept them. So, you know, I've had a, a real mixture of dogs over the years, and, but I've had some really good ones. Well, when you raised poor like I was, the saying was that a free dog is the best money can buy. So, uh, Charlie, <laughs> tell us about your uh, your most indelible covey rise. If, if I said which covey rise can you say I was right there, I can see it so vividly. What would that be? Oh man, I, you know, there's a there's there's so many of them, Dale. I mean, I've already had a good one this year that was an indelible covey rise, and and it was because I was standing over a a bush that I didn't think there was anything in there and my dog wouldn't give up. And, and, uh, and I walked past the bush and the whole covey came out behind me and I was, you know, you've had kind of like a beginning hunter all over again. I couldn't even get my gun up to shoot. So I've, I, I, I've had so many good covey rises and, you know, I, I remember some of the ones when I was younger, when I was a lot quicker and you could, you could take, you know, two, three, maybe four birds out on the covey rise if you were quick enough, you know, and, and, uh, and reload and they're coming off the ground kind of as starburst one at a time. And those are fun, you know, uh, versus the ones that just explode on you all at once. But, uh, but I've just had a whole lot of them that have been really, really good and seen a lot of really, 
exciting dog work and which is I enjoy that as much as I do you know harvesting the birds I I don't have to kill them anymore it, I mean I like to my dogs make sure I get one because it, it upsets them if you don't bring one down every now and then but I really enjoy just just watching the dog work well you mentioned a while ago you're boss was uh, in San Angelo was John Cargill with Cargill Ranches and Producers Livestock Auction and uh, I guess Mr. Cargill passed away five or six years ago but you will never hear a bad thing or I've never heard a bad thing about John Cargill. He was highly respected in the industry and and I, I'm sure he was a pretty good boss to work for um, and I'm going to use that as a segue I was over at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association NCBA back i don't know probably 2005 or six over at the Opryland hotel in nashville tennessee and if you've ever been to the Opryland hotel you know it is one maze of trails getting from a meeting room back to your your bedroom kind of thing and it's, it's about 10 o'clock at night when i was making my way back to my room and as i cross or turn the corner in one of those little trails who do i run into but four or five past presidents of the Texas and Southwest Cattle Raiser Association. And shout out to these guys, uh, John Dudley, uh, Dick Sharon, uh, uh, John Means, Bobby McCann, and there was somebody else who I can't remember. But I, I stopped and congratulated them. I said, I just want y'all to know how proud I am to work with TSCRA because I know you guys really like quail. And I brought up the idea of the rancher with bird dogs kind of thing. And John Dudley said, and I quote, Hell, you can't even aspire to be president of TRCRA if you don't love quail, end quote. And I think that's a tremendous testament, and, and I wish that that, was, that permeated the whole uh, ranching industry uh, with that emphasis and interest. And again, um, Charlie is, is in that fold. So, um, Charlie, I, I want to make a distinction between having cows and quail at the same time, which a lot of people have, and using cows to manage quail habitat. I would suggest they're not necessarily the same thing, and you can't maximize both simultaneously. So, and I'm going to ask you to contrast two different situations. One is the properties that you work for, uh, the Cargill properties, and, and what is your attitude and your management objective there versus I know you, you bought some land recently over in Runnels County, uh, so contrast, uh, if, if, you, if there is differences between how you manage quail or what your goals are for your commercial land versus your private property. Well, Dale, I guess, you know, I'm kind of still in the, the learning stages on the, you know, I think we all are because we, we don't know everything about these birds. But um, as far as the, the, the owning your own land and, and managing it for birds, uh, and that's kind of what I'm trying to do on my my place, and and uh, and definitely the you really can't maximize both of them. I don't think at the same time, but uh, so I'm I'm able to do that a little bit more. Try to do that a little bit more as I try to put this place that I purchased back in shape, and because it was overgrazed and kind of beat up, but it was in pretty good quail country, and and I'm trying to rebuild you know habitat. So I do, I really don't I'm not I'm not uh, constrained by economic factors other than how much money I can pull out of my pocket. Uh, now, when I, on a, in my, my vocation, 
working for the Cargill family and in previous locations, working for the Welder family down along the Gulf Coast. And Leo Welder was a big quail hunter. And and uh, and as as I've had some you know wonderful mentors, like as you said, Mr. Cargill and Jim Donnell and the people that are all in quail country and Leo Welder and um, kind of been around. But you know, I'm my my task is to make money ranching. We're not surviving on, on um, you know, pump jacks or anything like that. We, we, each of our entities, we have different entities that make money doing different things, and they all got to stand alone. So I've got to make money in the cattle business. Uh, so I've I've worked pretty hard at that, but I always keep the birds in mind and the wildlife. And I think that a good livestock manager, if you beat your country up too bad. You're not you're not doing your your country and your cattle any good either. So you can kind of push it up to the edge sometimes more so than we like to, and uh, and it'll be detrimental to your birds. But if you really take care of it right, I don't I don't think you you hurt your birds that much, um, you know. And I've definitely have seen the places that are overgrazed, and and I've had some as we came out of droughts where the I heard your podcast last week with Daryl Eckert, or, or and it, and it just talking about these desert termites. So they're the they're a challenge to a you know a man that's ranching or trying to raise you know cover for quail. So um, you know it's not just the cows that'll overgraze a place or sheep and goats. It, you know those those little buggers are pretty rough. And we're going to delve more into that equation about things like stocking rates and game per head and those kind of things as we get on down into the podcast. A lot of times uh, we, I will feature a point counterpoint. For example, going back to the first quail master's class in 2005, we were down around George West, Texas, and I had uh, Dr. Sharon, who was president of the cattle race at that time, uh, in a point counterpoint situation against Terry Lee. Uh, Terry passed away five or six years ago, but he was uh, one of the most um, popular outfitters as far as dogs and dog trucks, that kind of thing in, in South Texas. And so they're, they're discussing, debating a grass lease versus a quail lease. And uh, Terry had a, a very memorable quote that uh, I've always carried with me since that time as far as cattle versus quail. And his quote was, and I quote, when they take your lease check and buy round bales, you know you're in trouble, end quote. Uh, so again, balancing uh, balancing the management objectives. And, and I found that if you got one person in charge, like in our case today, Charlie, that's really better than having a grass lessee and a hunting lessee because they've always got some uh, differences of opinion and, and differences in uh, management objectives kind of thing. So. Uh, having that person that's wearing that camouflage cowboy hat, as I often talk about, that can make the decisions and then, again, appreciate the uh, consequences that may lie in store as relates to uh, wildlife and, in our, in our case, quail today. I was um, in a, a range management class at Oklahoma State University many, many years ago, about 1979, as I recall. Uh, we had discussions uh, on the various principles of uh, range management in what the professor called the cardinal rules, and those are four, the proper kind and class of animal, the 
proper stocking rate, the proper season of grazing, and the proper grazing distribution. And that was hammered into me for a long time, but I appreciate now that those rules were really written with livestock production in mind. And over the last 40 years, again, we've uh, we've seen that pendulum kind of swing back a little bit to make wildlife uh, a more important enterprise for many of the ranchers. So we want to, I guess, Charlie, I'm going to go through those briefly and get your thoughts. As far as the proper kind and class of animal, and again, if you're not familiar with range livestock jargon, that's just basically saying, are you dealing with stockers? Are you dealing with cattle? Or are you dealing with sheep and goats kind of thing? So, Charlie, you've had them all. And and what's what are some uh, thoughts or rules of thumb as far as cows versus stockers? And, and, and can you have quail on sheep and goat country in the Edwards Plateau? You know, I, I know you can have quail in sheep or goat country because we had them when I was a boy and we had sheep and goats. Um, so I I feel pretty strongly saying that. I, th I think proper stocking rate of, of whatever class of livestock you have is at, at the proper time is probably the most important aspect there, not necessarily the, the class of livestock, you know, with, with I, I think you... I'm also, I am a firm believer that you need some livestock on a place uh, because I have been on places that didn't have livestock, places that we've actually operated uh, with livestock and uh, that didn't have livestock when we got there and there, there weren't any quail uh, or the quail were in areas that were the grass wasn't as thick and as dense and, and once we started moving some cattle through the place, the, the the quail kind of spread out or, or maybe even increased in numbers. You know, it's hard to tell if you're not out there counting them and hunting them. But uh, I, I don't, I think, the, I think your uh, rotations are important, Dale. I, and I, not necessarily planned rotations from the point of, of uh, your, your rotational systems, like, a you know, a one herd, you know, multiple pasture system or two herd multiple pasture system. Um, I just think it's it's more about you know most of the country that I've always operated has been what I would call you know, bigger country um, you know, West Texas or South Texas and and uh, larger pastures and and I just think you just don't need to beat any of them up too bad you need to you know stay ahead of the stay ahead of the game and and the other thing and and not overstock uh, by not overstocking country. It, you have a when once drought appears or begins to appear, you have a little more time to think and uh, and make decisions whether you're you you know I've seen a lot of these people wait until the last minute when everything's gone and they're overstocked and their cows are having baby calves and then they finally decide they got to pull off because the feed bill is going to be too high because they're going to have to start buying hay and I think that's where most people make the mistake and if you've gotten that far. Um, I have to agree with Terry Lee. I think you're 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 in trouble on your on your birds. Uh, your blue quail might be able to survive it a little better further west that, uh, than the Bob Whites can, but those Bob Whites got to have something to get down in. Charlie, let's talk about uh, moving, say, from Victoria to Big Lake. Moving from I don't know, maybe a forty-inch rainfall zone. Uh, out to about a, a 15 inch rainfall zone. And how does that precipitation gradient and the resulting 
grazing capacity, how does that impact uh, things like stocking rate and kind of class of animal and season, all those various cardinal rules? You know, there, there definitely not many, I didn't have much experience with sheep and goats when I was down there south of uh, Victoria and down into deep south Texas. Um, but <clears throat> I think that, you know, if, if you get that higher rainfall, it, it, it does allow you to have, you know, heavier stocking rates. I mean, we'd, we'd run a cow to, to 12 acres down there between Victoria and Refugio and and uh, on that country. And, and when we had normal normal rainfall or average rainfall, whatever you want to call that. And then, uh, and, and we actually get a little more worried about our birds when we had, uh, when we had heavy, heavy rainfall at certain times, because you could get some, some country where we were relatively close to the Gulf Coast, it could flood and that could give you a problem. But especially if they were nesting, uh, we, we were concerned, but uh, as you, as you move further west, I mean, we've got country southwest Big Lake and Crockett County that, that you know, we'll, we'll have an animal unit to two, three, four hundred acres. And, and so it's, a, it's just a whole different ballgame. You just have to adjust with your country, you know, as with any, whether you're just trying to raise livestock or whether you're trying to raise livestock and, and, and birds and deer. And, you know, it all kind of goes along together as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's not a one size fits all or various prescriptions like for stocking rates. And I, and I would argue that grazing as a tool for quail management is much more important in that 40 inch rainfall zone than it is in that 15 inch rainfall zone. But it, it's a, again, a balancing act and it requires a lot of skill on, on the skill and commitment on the, uh, from the land, from the manager in your, in your case about how you balance, how you keep all those plates spinning if you were a fan of the Ed Sullivan show back then. I'm going to suggest to you listeners that uh, over the last 30 years or so, there's been a real changing of the guard as far as land ownership. Uh, we've all seen the dissolution of some of the larger ranches and kind of lament that, but uh, that's a sign of the times. And I was on a uh, Brush Appreciation Day back in 2002. Brush Appreciation Day. Yeah, they, uh, people often think I'm crazy. Uh, but we were in Aspermont, Stonewall County, South Aspermont, on a property. And one of the uh, directors for Texas Southwest Cattle Raisers, Jerry Bob Daniel, shout out to Jerry Bob. Jerry Bob was talking about, again, the changing land ownership patterns and things like, uh, again, a rancher or uh, a ranch that was historically driven by livestock production is now managed for white-tailed deer or for Bob White quail. And Jerry Bob uh, addressed his peers when he said this, and I quote, guys, the way I see it, we have two choices. We can either learn to work with them or work for them. And that for, with them or for them would be the absentee landowners. So I think that's, um, as land parcels has decreased and properties changed hand, it's created a niche for a, uh, a grazier. And that's somebody that I, I say is more cognizant of uh, understocking and uh, using cattle as a tool to manage wildlife habitat. So uh, I would, I've often touted a program that I coined back in 1997, brush sculptors, and it's become a part of the lexicon of ranchers very well over the last 30 years. And I would propose that uh, the, the niche is there for grass sculptors. Again, grazing tenants who are 
attuned to the uh, desires and the, the needs of an absentee landowner. So, uh, Charlie, I'd, I'd ask for your thoughts. Uh, have you seen that? Uh, have you seen that pendulum swing back from cattle only to more interest in, in wildlife? Uh, no, no question, Dale. And I mean, we've had to, uh, we've, we've operated, and I'm talking about Cargoff Cattle Company, and we've operated a lot of different ranches over a lot of, uh, a lot of country, even even some of that Goliad County and down in South Texas, and uh, you know, and, and it's we we we've we've always had pretty good deals with the landowners, and we understand what the landowners' interests are, and a lot of times that interest is only in the wildlife, uh, and they're they're allowing us to to be stewards of the land by putting livestock on their country, but uh, the way we we've had to make that work is and it's and it's i wish more landowners would do it this way but uh is is we won't pay a, a grass lease per se of uh other than so many dollars per animal unit and um based on what we have stocked on the ranch and uh i try to be the one that makes the decisions on how much we have out there so we can so we can stay and leave whenever uh, we think we need to get off to keep the landowner happy. And, um, you know, sometimes we go a little longer than I'd like to. And sometimes we, we get off a little earlier than I'd like to just because of the economic conditions. But I think these guys that are stuck in these traditional, uh, these traditional agreements with landowners where they're paying so many dollars per acre, uh, per year, and they're locked into these leases where they have to pay it regardless of how much livestock they have out there. I think that causes a lot of these ranches that these people would really like that, you know, that, that are owned by people that really just want to hunt them or recreate on them. That causes a lot of friction sometimes. And uh, I'm willing to take the economic risk that I'm going to have to move my cows off and possibly sell them or go to another ranch with them. Uh, but I'm not willing to take that economic risk of, having to pay somebody when I don't have anything out there or having to be the guy that overgrazes the ranch. And, and, uh, but I've really, uh, like you said, I mean, there, there's no question that the, the leaning has been toward, uh, recreating on these ranches in one form or fashion by absentee owners, not to mention the, you know, the sizes of places are, they're being cut up much smaller than they were in the past. And one of the things, again, when I talked about the dissolution of some of the larger ranches and, and, and my lament about that is because it, it seems to me like it's just, it's the natural order of things that as properties get cut up, smaller and smaller landowners, land holdings, the intensity of use in terms of livestock tends to go up. And that's a, that's a whirlpool that, uh, I wish we could get out of, but uh, again, it's just greater demands as properties get smaller kind of thing. And that's generally not a good idea uh, relative to quail. One of the things that uh, uh, my former president for the Roman Plains Pool Research Foundation, Justin Trail, shout out to Justin from Albany. And Justin and I, several years ago, again, recognizing the idea of ranchers with bird dogs, we came up with the idea that we need a, a bird dog adoption program for ranchers. And so uh, instead of that Catahoula or that red healer, they need to, uh, they need to have a, in my case, a setter, 
or pointer or German shorthair or whatever to again try to make them appreciate perhaps more of the uh, in our case the quail interest and and making hopefully being able to cultivate that avocation of quail hunting and then as a result we get uh, more quail friendly grazing practices in many cases uh, that never happened but I think it was a good idea and I'll use that as a as a time to say as you go hunting uh, whether you're on your own property or lease property or whatever invite that landowner or that land manager to go with you now they're busy people and they may not but if you, you can take them out chances are chances are they hunted quail when they were young and try to rekindle that interest and that ethic about quail hunting i'm gonna bring up something right here that uh it's it's really cool i mean as you develop a, a program in this case a podcast and you begin to outline the talking points well all of a sudden uh, we're going to go back to Aldo Leopold because uh, Aldo Leopold has some influences on you, Charlie. So tell us about that connection between you, your grandfather, and Aldo Leopold. Well, Dale, I mean, I, I guess this goes back to my, my what's in my genetics is that my my grandfather was raised up in Mendon, Nebraska, and and uh, on a farm, and then went to the University of Nebraska and then went over to Europe and and uh, was went to our home country of Denmark and and uh, went to the University of Copenhagen and learned a lot about uh, rural cooperatives and things came back to the United States and and uh, eventually after some time in Washington DC eventually ended up at the University of Wisconsin as Dean of Agriculture throughout the 30s and into the 40s and and uh, he, he felt that that the wildlife and agriculture, he was very agriculture based and he felt that wildlife and farming and cattle and all that needed to be together. And at that point in time, there really wasn't a wildlife program or that where they were in the Department of Agriculture. And, and uh, so he brought Aldo Leopold to the University of Wisconsin. He was the he was the man that went out and got him and brought him there and credited with bringing him there. And so I, I guess I've, I, I like to brag about that every now and then. Absolutely. I, I think that's just incredible. And uh, uh, kudos to your, your uh, grandfather for bringing Aldo Leopold and giving him that start that he had. And again, his, uh, his influence on the whole wildlife industry. I mean, there's nobody more influential over the years than Aldo Leopold. And I want to, uh, Give a shout out to our mine and your uh, friend and colleague Stephen Daly from San Angelo, who had written an article about this for Texas Wildlife, and and again, uh, thanks for bringing it up. I was not aware of that, and we are indeed dealing with royalty today, folks. But th think about think about Charlie's Odyssey, and again, his heritage and his ancestry, and don't you wish, as a quail hunter, don't you wish we had that quail ethic, if you will across the board uh, with various landowners. Okay, Charlie, I want to move into a session here of the podcast about uh, getting on some of the specifics about, again, how to use grazing create creatively, as uh, Leopold talked about. Uh, and I'm going to give you the scenario that if quail rule, quail are like we are here at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, quail are at the apex of every decision we do. So if quail rule, 
how would you tailor a grazing program? Well, that's a good question, Dale. I mean, uh, assuming I had a, uh, a bank of quail to begin with, I would try to determine where my best quail country was on, you know, on the property. And I would try to make my, my country that wasn't my best quail country more like my best quail country if I could. Um, if, you know, if, if dollars would allow it or if your grazing habits would allow it. Um, but I think that if quail rule, I think you just, I'd, I'd be using that livestock in a limited way and I'd be, I'd have everything, if, if water would allow it, which is the limitation a lot of time with livestock and, and rotation systems, uh, I, would, I would put cat, my livestock in groups whatever it was in larger groups. And I would move them through that rotation uh, possibly a little faster, but I would really look at my, you know, where do I want them to be at a certain time of year uh, to, if, if I think I've got an area that's the nesting habitat's better, you know, I would probably put them in, you know, I'd may take them and put them in my hills or something out here and, and leave those flaps alone and not beat the flaps up in the summertime. And, it, I'd just be looking for things like that that could could help my program. Would you be uh, touting cow calf or stalker animals? You know, I I kind of prefer a mix of both, uh, Dale. And I've I've um, in a, in a situation like that, and sometimes your stalkers may be just are you going to keep heifer calves that year, and how many you're going to keep and and use those heifers like stalkers, keep them, wean them, keep them longer, maybe even keep them long enough to breed them if you've got that much rainfall that you can do it. But if not, then you can you can sell those heifers in the spring and, and get them gone. But in other words, go with a very conservative stocking rate on your cows and calves. And because I need that uh, as, a, as a rancher, I would want some kind of steady income but it's a little easier to get in and out of the stalker program in a hurry, but it can, you can get caught without them at a time like it is today. If you went in with, with nothing on the range and decided to get some stalker cattle and, and you can buy some cattle awful high and lose a lot of money on them when you sell them. And I've got some good friends who in South Texas who, who do just that and quail rule and, They've taken some pretty good licks at times by just doing stalkers. So now they do, you know, some cows and some stalkers where they've always got, uh, they don't have to just uh, go out and buy more, you know, a whole lot of stalkers at the same time based on their needs on the ranch. Well, and as you mentioned, the in, integrating the cow-calf or integrating the stalkers with the uh, cow-calf provides you a much more flexible type stocking rate and again put and take and I think that whole put and take kind of thing is is what I'm hearing from various absentee landowners and quail managers and that's what they like so let, let's say that a, a person kind of, I've got I've got 5,000 acres I wish and I'm approached by a guy that wants to run some some cattle on me and I realize that again that some grazing is going to be beneficial to me so would would you have them out there year round or just a period of time during the year? What would be your thoughts there? 
Well, you know, if I if I'm a, it it, it depends on it. If they're coming to me, uh, you know, my preference is always going to be to have some of them out there year round. Uh, but I've I've dealt with ranchers that I mean the landowners that that you know we don't want any livestock at all not during the hunting season and you know that a lot of that is as much deer hunters as it is quail hunters and uh, you know they're they're doing it for reasons that they just don't want them in the way and uh, and so I, I've dealt with that and I I I'm fine with that as a as a grazer and I, and I think you can always find a grazer that is fine with that I think you just got to be careful that it's not always your next door neighbor because he might not be the best grazer around. You you know the best thing to do is as a as a landowner is do a little research and and uh, and find the right guy. And, and a lot of time that's that's a better decision for a for a landowner, especially who's got another vocation and he's this ranch is for him to hunt quail on and recreate on. Uh, is is go find the 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 best grazer you can find and somebody that's going to do what that has a reputation of doing what he said he's going to do and bringing the, the right kind of cattle and handle them right and, and has the same philosophy as you do about taking care of his country and, and those relationships can be carried on for many many years with with the right kind of guy i completely concur with you and i go back to that brush the evolution of that brush sculptor's mentality uh, pretty quickly when uh when deer and quail became the main reason for owning land 30 years or so ago, that uh, the old boy that uh, was doing fence row to fence row, root plowing or grubbing or whatever, the the market shaped the kind of land or the kind of contractor that you wanted. And somebody that was cognizant of things like Lote Bush and uh, Wolfberry or, you know, a little bit about just if it's there sick i'm gonna go get it kind of thing and i think the uh, it seems to me like over the last 10 years that again there is a niche and there will continue to be a niche maybe stronger for that grazier that is cognizant of what quail need and again can can say this is what i can do and what i can i can use my cattle as a as a crescent wrench to make it like you want to but it won't be a one size fits all do you have a particular grazing system that you advocate you kind of discussed that a while ago and, and i sensed that it was more of a what i call a decision deferred as opposed to a more rigorous uh, stocking system yeah, yeah yes i mean i I've, I've watched some guys that got into grazing systems and and you know and typically it's it's that you know they're people with different types of mentality as you well know and a lot of these guys you know somebody with it at the NRCS office or whatever will set up a grazing plan for them and 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 they get on this grazing plan and they they stay on it for 20 or 30 years you know and never never vary from it on a stocking rate a rotation and, and that'd be the extreme but I've seen it happen and and uh, and then the the other side of it is just grazing based on rainfall and where your feed is and what the country looks like and and um, and I that's really what I try to do. I try to make my decisions that way. I think in the, those those specific time rotations are more suited to country that's either irrigated or that is in wet country. Get over you know east I thirty five where you get a significant amount of rain and you got a smaller place and it's cut up you know to where it it's all kind of gets if it rains on 
one acre, it rains on all 500 acres or whatever, a thousand, whatever you own. But out here is if in West Texas, as most people know, and in South Texas, uh, any place where there's these ranches are, are kind of spread out. And, um, you may, you may get ranch rain on one ranch or on one side of the ranch and not on another one of your ranches or not on the other side of the ranch. I mean, when you talk about a, you know, even a 2,500 acres to, to, you know, 250,000 acres, that's a lot of, you know, a lot of time I can, I can watch rain off my front porch. It gets, you know, 200 yards away, but not get me. So especially it seems like recent years, we don't have those big systems that come in and lock in and rain on everything around, you know, so you, you kind of got to rotate based on where your feed is. I'm going to propose four questions uh, that, that I encourage uh, landowners uh, to think about relative to grazing and quail. Is grazing required? Is it permissible? Is it optional? or is it contradictory to your quail management goals? And again, a lot of that's going to depend on whether you're getting 40 inches of rainfall or 14 inches of rainfall. So those are some, some thoughts that as a, as a student of grazing and a student of quail, you, you got to begin to uh, think about those variables in your equation. And again, there's uh, technical assistance out there for you in RCS. Um, they have grazing land specialists, uh, that can help you. You just need to be careful. Again, those people's paradigms are often shaped by cattle only. And so you need to always uh, do your homework and be able to ask questions like, is it required, is it permissible, uh, optional, whatever. So become a student of that. There's uh, a lot of good information out there. And if I can help you find some of it, don't hesitate to give me a, a, a email at drollins at quailresearch.org. Uh, we kind of talked about this, but Charlie, as we begin to wrap up again, let's summarize what I'd call some tips that you could give us for a quail-friendly quail lease. Well, that's that's a good question. I, I want to say one thing first, Dale, is that as I listen to you and you talk about the absentee landowners, I, I've been confronted many times with people that go buy a place and then they say, what what do you think I ought to do? And, and uh, and, it, and I've been in a situation where we've taken over a piece of property uh, and I've been in that situation many times over the last 45, 50 years and, and uh, take over a piece of property. And, and the one thing that people have a tendency, cattle people have a tendency to say, boy, look at all the grass and they go get as many as they can and run them out there. And, and, and uh, some of these hunting people, they, they think, well, let's, I want to have, you know, they go in with this preconceived notion that I want to have exotics. And so they go put a high fence up and start feeding the hell out of them or, or with whitetail or, and some of the quail people may have the idea that, you know, I don't want anything out here. And, and, you know, and I, I really think that it's important that people spend the time with their own place. When, if you, you know, if you can to, when you buy a place, you need to spend a year or two at least and, and watch your weather and your rainfall and, and see what's going on around you and talk to some of your neighbors and, and really learn your country that you've bought before you jump off the deep end on any projects. And uh, I kind of been wanting to say that. And I've, I, I, I think I see, I see it too often. They get in a hurry. 
Well, as Oklahoma's favorite son, Will Rogers, once said, there's nothing more ignorant than an educated man once you get him off the subject he was educated in. So certainly we have medical professionals or computer folks or whoever that are, are buying properties. And then, like you say, they they um, may be quite they are quite knowledgeable about their respective technology, but they're probably pretty ignorant when it comes to discerning silver blue stem from silver. And so becoming a student of your land, becoming a student of quail, as I call it, uh, certainly that's an odyssey that we I would encourage all of you to embark upon. Charlie, let's um, let me end that session by saying that I hope you will agree with me that we need to keep ranching profitable uh, if we're ever going to get out of that spiral of of the, the land being sold, intergenerational transfer, and what was a 10,000-acre ranch is now four 2,500-acre ranches, and then one of them wants to subdivide, and we get into that situation. And and I guess maybe, you know, you've got you've got multiple bosses now that Mr. Cargill passed on, Charlie, so how do you, how do you keep them all happy? <laughs> I, I don't know, Dale. I've been, I've been around the a while and 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 it's I've worked for a, a really good family and and uh, they've I guess I guess if I'd only been here for two or three years I'd they'd be beat me up a little bit more but they're they're pretty good to me and you know that they they kind of know this is my wheelhouse and they they defer to my judgment and, and if, until I've I, I hadn't made all the right decisions and I hadn't made as much money as some people have, but I've, I've kept it all together. And that's, that's really kind of what I've been tasked with. So, but I really, really have a good family and to work for, and that's, it's all about the people. I, I've got, you may or may not want to share this. We had lunch here a couple of weeks ago and and you told me about one of the perks that Mr. Cargill offered you <laughs> when you were uh, entertaining the employment with him. And, and I'll precede that by saying many of you, many of you have heard me say that in 1974, I had to get married. And then after a pregnant pause, I'll say it had nothing to do with the physiological status of my bride to be is because my future father-in-law had the best quail hunting in Harmon County. And I had to marry into that. So if, if your wife's not listening and you want to share that, uh, tell us that story. I, I guess I don't mind sharing, Dale. I think I've told it a couple of times, but I've told uh, Mr. Cargill and I spent a day uh, when I was interviewing with him back in the in the late '80s, driving around and from ranch to ranch. And and uh, anybody that knew Mr. Cargill knew that by the end of the day, uh, he's a very intelligent man. He knew everything you knew and you knew nothing he knew because he, he was make he would ask you a question and then you would answer and and uh, then he'd ask you another question and and uh, that's kind of how it went and but at the end of the day he he told me he said you've sure talked a lot about quail hunting and I said yes sir and he said well he said this this is how much money I can offer you and this is all I can offer you but he said if if you if you uh as much as you sound like you like quail hunting, you can quail hunt my country as long as you work for me and my family anytime you want. And uh, and he loved quail hunting himself. And and uh, I never told my wife, but that's what kicked me over the edge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Charlie, um, as we bring things to a close today, share with us what, what your outlook is on the future of quail hunting in Texas. You know, 
I've I've heard that you ask other people that, and I, I you know, I I want to be positive, and I always want to be positive because I th I don't think there's much to be had from pessimism. Um, you need to be optimistic, but you got to be realistic, and I think that I think we're going to see quail hunting. Uh, be here it'll be here 50 years from now as far as i'm concerned it's going to be more in pockets uh and it may be a pocket at albany and a pocket in fish county pockets in south texas and pockets in west texas but it's going to be where people cared enough to to do the right thing and and treat their country right and you know if we could ever get uh everybody thinking the same way we'd have a lot more birds but I kind of think that's how the the future of the the quail industry is 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 just you're gonna you're gonna drive from one hole to the next where you've got really good quail hunting and and that's where people really care about it. And that's where you'll find the ranchers with bird dogs and wearing camouflage cowboy hats. So, Charlie, is there anything that uh, you want to share with us today that we haven't discussed? Dale, I don't I don't think so. I think you've kind of covered it. I'm I'm sure I've. I've uh, I've been lucky enough to hunt with a, a lot of good people and got to take some of those presidents of Texas cattle, Southwestern cattle raisers hunting. And like I said, they all loved it. I took uh, uh, Jimmy Powell and, and John Cargill and Hilma Moore and and uh, Johnny Jones hunting one time and, and had a great hunt. And I'll never forget Jimmy Powell telling me that the reason I had so many quail at the time was it was because we had so much cactus. And I was a prickly pear, so I, you know, I couldn't tell if he was that was an insult or a compliment at the time. But I was younger then, and but if, and then I got to hunt with Leo Welder and some of those folks in South Texas, and so I've, I've really been lucky to hunt with a lot of people, and and I appreciate you having me on your show. Well, we appreciate uh, not only your acumen, but uh, obviously the experiences that you share with us and. Uh, again, the idea of the ranchers with bird dogs. So, folks, as we uh, leave today's podcast, I would encourage you again to uh, visit with your respective landowners and try to take them out on a quail hunt and hopefully a good one. And uh, I, I think it'll pay dividends for you. I also want to remind you to uh, think of what I call Susie's point number two of her 12-point plan, hug your giants because uh, we all appreciate that we never know when's the last time we're going to see somebody. And I'm sure Charlie would give anything to be able to uh, go back and visit with his granddad and talk about all the Leopolds. So always be on the, uh, never, never leave those doors uh, shut out or closed. Uh, always, always entertain those. And if you have ideas for future podcasts, uh, please let me know. D Rollins at quailresearch.org. Uh, next month's podcast is going to be really interesting. It's going to be on falconry and quail. So I know you'll want to uh, pay attention to that. And there's some real lessons therein for uh, quail managers. So I encourage you to uh, be with us on that one on about January the 20th. And then uh, our call for quail masters is now open. It will be open until the 1st of April. So if you're interested in the quail masters program, you'll learn a whole lot more about cows and quail and stocking rates and game per acre and all those kind of things that are part of that equation. So uh, be sure and sign up for that. You can find out more information at quailresearch.org or again, send me a uh, email at drollins at quailresearch.org. And with that, Gary, I'm going to turn it back to you in the um, 
studio. Look forward to speaking with you next year. And certainly we wish all of our listeners a, a very blessed and, and Merry Christmas. So look forward to seeing you all again in 2024. Signing off. Thank you so much, Dr. Dale. And thank you, Charlie, for sharing your wonderful insights on managing cows and quail. We can all learn from your experiences. We hope you've enjoyed this month's podcast and conversation. For more information about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast and past episodes, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner of the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.